0: Hi, everyone. Today is February 5th, 2015. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Carmen Canavier, or Canavier. 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 Uh, she is the Julius Mullins Professor and Vice Chair for Research in the Department of Cell, and Cell Biology and Anatomy at the LSU School of Medicine at New Orleans. Hi there. Hi. Um, So she's a computational neuroscientist who's interested in synchronization and phase locking of small networks of oscillating neurons and in the biophysical basis of different firing patterns in neurons, most recently um, midbrain dopamine neurons. Um, Around the room, we've got Gerard Bowden. Hello. And Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So um, let's start with the dopamine uh, burst. So there's such an important currency in understanding motivated behavior. One of the ideas that that you've been working on for a while is is that there are sort of a a mechanistic diversity of bursts produced by dopamine neurons. Can you talk us uh, through some of your ideas about that and maybe say something about why a cell might need more than one burst mechanism uh, and... You know, would a target cell know the difference between one kind of burst or another and, you know, is this a way to sort well, inputs or what, what, what are we talking about exactly? That's a good question.
1: Um, so uh, th- do I need to define bursting or uh, just jump right in? It's probably good to, to yeah. define bursting in dopamine okay. because it yeah. Yeah. Exactly it's not exactly the same. Concept. Right. So I, I do come from a, like, a nonlinear dynamics background. And so in, in that background, a burst of spikes, a burst is considered to be rhythmic. So... You, know, you can have single-spike firing, which is like pacing, which is like the heart, maybe. Or you can have bursts, where you have a rat-a-tat burst. Burst to spikes, silence, and another burst, if you're right. But in dopamine neurons, there's an operational definition uh, that if you have an inner spike interval that's 80 milliseconds, less than 80 milliseconds, and then all the spikes after that until your inner spikes interval is as long as 160 milliseconds, that's actually a burst. So it doesn't need to be any kind of rhythmic firing context, necessarily. It's just firing faster than normal, is called a burst. And normal, I guess, would be one to eight hertz in, in dopamine neurons. Um, so the bursts are important because they, they were thought to uh, be convey signals related to reward, either a reward itself or a stimulus that predicts a reward. And um, so, but then that, that was the early thinking. Now it's diversified that maybe. Bursting dopamine neurons might not signal just uh, motivational value, uh, that they might signal motivational salience. So you might get uh, dopaminergic signaling to an aversive event because it's salient. Of course, the same neurons would then respond to a rewarding event as well because it's also salient. Uh, I guess the way I got what started me on this uh, different types of bursting was talking to Joachim Roper, my colleague in Frankfurt, and he had associated some particular bursts in a particular part of A particular group of dopamine neurons, which would be the medial uh, substantia nigra, that those bursts were required, that they signaled novelty, and that they required for uh, novelty-induced exploration, a locomotor exploration in a novel environment. Uh, And so these bursts require uh, the activation of one particular current, a potassium current that's uh, sensitive to ATP, so it's linked to the metabolism of the cell. Um, I, I'm struggling a little bit with, uh, you know, why you need different, different bursts. But I guess uh, maybe diff- bursts in different subpopulations signal different things. The bigger question is, if you have two types of bursts in the same subpopulation, then how would you read that out downstream? And I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm actually not sure about that. Maybe they could have different frequencies or, you know, the, that, the downstream readout is hard.
2: Maybe you don't need maybe they you maybe you may, don't need. <laughs> maybe you don't maybe they're not important that they're different downstream yeah but they may be more important upstream right so if you have uh, you, if bursts are so important you may want to regulate when and how often and how readily a cell bursts and you may want to have multiple mechanisms for regulating those things because then you have multiple sites of modulation uh, based on other behavioral state when you'd want to burst or not so you might want to have five different ways of regulating uh, bursts or one dopamine neuron burst because if you're, I don't know, if you're hungry and you want to be more, yeah. uh, you know, more exploratory or whatever, stressed out or whatever the different regulations that might affect whether you're going to burst or not, it, they all ha- will have to have some kind of, uh, you know, biological pathway to mediate those bursts. So you have lots of different things and lots of handles on on whether bursts happen. I mean, it's still possible that you could read it out downstream, but it doesn't seem necessary. Yeah.
1: It's an easier code if bursts in medial nigra mean one thing and bursts in lateral nigra mean another. I don't know if that's the case, but it's easy to read out in that case.
0: so you think it is true that the target cell doesn't know? We, you've looked quantitatively, or someone has looked quantitatively.
1: Actually, we don't bursts. even know. We really don't know, uh, other than Yochum's Yo- work, that that he, that uh, there's evidence that the novelty-induced bursting and the, no- the bursting required for novelty-induced exploration is confined to the medial substantia nigra. We really don't know anything else about other types of bursts and 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 whether and and we don't know that the medial nigra neurons don't exhibit other types of bursting that aren't novelty related. Although knocking the you know I did show data today that said that uh, knocking down this one conduct that's either virally or through a genetic knockout um, eliminated that that type of bursting. So that that does sort of speak to the fact that maybe they don't have other types of bursts in in the medial nigra. But but uh, that's just one study. And I don't know. if There's many other studies. Does is anybody? Was familiar with uh, people looking at different subpopulations and whether they, whether there's SK mediated induced in, SK uh, induced bursting in the medial. Probably something I should ask Vincent Soitan. He may have looked at something like that.
3: Why do we even worry about the dopamine neurons dynamics when we think about bursts? Aren't bursts just caused by Big huge EPSPs, and the cell <laughs>
1: fires faster while the EPSP is there, and then so I'm yeah, glad EPSPs. I asked. In. you asked that, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assume you're uh, referring to the depolarization block limitations.
3: No, I'm just worried about. Uh, well, generally speaking, when yeah. when we when we see a neuron burst, I think most people don't think oh, that neuron must have some exotic dynamics. Right. Most people think that neuron must be getting a big input. It's firing fast. And so it's just firing faster because it's getting a bigger input. So in, if you make a big model of the dopamine neuron based on integrated mm-hmm. fire neurons, you could make it fire just like dopamine cells do mm-hmm. by controlling the input just the right way. And so if I'm a modeler who prefers to make models out of integrated fire neurons, then I could just say... My model is simpler than your model, it's like all neurons are the same, as, right. it, as neurons are everywhere, because all neurons everywhere are integrated by our neurons. And the, the, the thing that makes a burst is the presynaptic afferent volume. Right. So why do we think that in dopamine neurons, that kind of simple way of thinking I know people used to think that way about dopamine so I'm just
1: wondering, right? Why do we not think that way? Well, this is actually when I the fir- my first introduction to bursting was that uh, the pa- I, I showed a figure of uh, Freeman Meltzer and Bunny. I think it is. It's from Steve Bunny's lab. That's the first. That's the oldest paper that I remember that shows single spike firing and burst firing. And that figure shows rhythmic bursting. <laughs> so I guess that threw me off because I, I assumed then that bursting was rhythmic. But I know that you, you can't, I believe that you can see some rhythmic bursting. That's, that's uh, the examples that maybe were handpicked. But there were examples that I showed from Yochum's paper where there, there is rhythmic bursting both in vivo and in vitro. But that doesn't really speak to your question of why do we need it. Uh,
3: so for example, in other bursting sounds like maybe... Bursting cells in a aplesia, mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there some kind of evidence that that in cellular dynamics contributes to bursting and in, in other places in the nervous system, or even in dopamine neurons in vivo, where the bursts can be said to not be artifacts mm-hmm. of the on abdomen or something like that? Correct. Uh, is there evidence for uh, for for postsynaptic dynamics, having a role in creating those, I mean intrinsic.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, certainly the fact that the, if you block the SK channel, and it upregulates bursting. I, that's, I think, that tells you that the in, uh, intrinsic dynamics are regulating bursting. The SK intact, it can prevent. And actually, uh, so the latest thing from Vincent's lab is that any imbalance in the L calcium channel and the SK can cause bursting. So. He, he his the latest his poster at Neuroscience. Latest thing was they need to be in balance. If you upregulate L or uh, and, and that's been shown, uh, or downregulate S K, but but anyway, so that 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 evidence so you can put on. Um, well, you as I said, you can put on S K channel blockers in vivo, and you can have a, gr- a greater tendency to burst. So that implies that the intrinsic dynamics have something to do with it. Is so that you got other?
3: I was just wondering, okay. I
1: mean there's this
3: I, I, I maybe I misread mm-hmm. it or I oversimplify, I often oversimplify, but in my read of the world of people who study neurons mm-hmm. they basically fall into two camps ones that think that synaptic patterns, pattern neuronal activity and that neurons, intrinsic properties are pretty much not right. a player and the ones that think that neurons' intrinsic properties are super important. Right. And so, you know, you can find people who think both ways, but I thought right. you might give us an
1: authoritative answer to that question. Well, well, the other thing is something you brought up yourself is the depolarization block issue, that if you just have a big, giant depolarization, that's not actually enough to cause high-frequency firing, although it depends on which population of cells you're looking at, supposedly, because uh, some of the papers from the uh, Steve Lamel as uh, the first author, and they look at the VTA, and apparently the VTA has uh, the parabrachial nucleus, the paranigral, and the, I don't remember, intra somebody, something with the intrafasicular I think it is. Mm. And most of the recordings have been from the parabrachial, which is kind of nigra-like in that it has an upper limit of 10 hertz. But if you look at some of these other nuclei, that they might have upper limits of 20 or more. So, again... So maybe they don't need a special burst mechanism, some populations. But the ones that are capped out at, at 10 hertz max, and if they're firing a lot faster than that in vivo, there may be some intrinsic component. But on the other hand, you could see a synaptic mechanism. That I think, uh, was it Morikawa that drove these neurons at 50 hertz because he was given them a square wave that's depolarizing and then hyperpolarizing, so it's removing the... What's causing depolarization block, I think, is... Uh, cumul- is you're not recovering from an activation. So you're accumulating inactivation. But if you gave it this little square wave stimulus where you're hyperpolarizing after each depolarization, then you can make it fire faster.
4: That was Carlos's work.
1: From the more called lab though. No. no was was Sorry, I'm it was remembering wrong then.
4: Yeah. yeah. they did show that on a So is the
0: idea that this these mechanisms exist in, in individual neurons, or are we talking about discrete classes of dopamine neurons like in the medial region of, you know, of, I mean, are these like sort of subgroups, well, there's Yeah, de-
1: I, I, I I'm buying into the idea that there are subpopulations, and, I, and then two, one, it would, there's maybe subpopulations with respect to different burst mechanisms, and also subpopulations with respect to different upper limitations on their on dynamic range, on how fast they can fire, and these subpopulations are sometimes defined by like where they project. Um,
0: but depolarization block is a common feature across all these neurons.
1: Yes, but some of them go into it sooner than others. A sooner meaning at lower frequencies. Sorry.
3: So if a neuron goes into depolarization block at a frequency that's lower than the burst. Right. Yeah. if we hypothetically imagine a neuron that goes into depolarization block and you try to make it go 8 hertz, Mm -hmm. and then you suddenly see it firing 80 hertz, you've got to imagine that there was something about its dynamic. Right, something that's preventing it from going dynamics that allowed the one thing and not the other. And there can't be a difference in synaptic input.
1: Not entirely. Not entirely, because I think that in some cases that the NMDA... Conductance might be able to compensate since it it, it is the NMDA uh, receptor current is some way similar to the voltage gated sodium channel because it has a voltage dependence conferred on it by the magnesium block that's relieved by depolarization. So I I think that if you have if you're getting a depolarization block because you don't have enough sodium current availability, it's possible that uh, synaptic stimulation of the NMDA receptors might be able to uh, help initiate spikes
3: so maybe we shouldn't be looking at, interesting dynamics. at intrinsic
1: dynamics intrinsic um, dynamics to play the devil's advocate um, it, yeah they uh, they have a lot of interesting oscillatory behavior right? I guess it's possible that it's an epiphenomenon but uh, not all neurons are pacemakers though and uh, certainly when they're pacemaking it's not because they have pacemaking
3: synaptic No. No,
1: and you know, dopamine, notes. actually I guess the basal ganglia is uh, probably the richest area in the brain in, in terms of pacemakers.
2: And in many other ways. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have know, if you just, you know, some there's uh, lots of ways to answer the question, but if you talk about whether you have a bursting mode or a tonic mode, it's possible that your inputs come in two flavors, uh, but if it's just an integrated. Fire. If it's just an integrator kind of different differences in rate, why would you expect two rates to be or two ranges of rates to be so, you know, prevalent? Why would you expect a bimodal distribution in interspike intervals? So that's an outsider. So you look at the pauses now. Yeah, or or the mm-hmm. fact that you got high frequency. When it, when it's high frequency, it's not intermediate frequencies. It's high frequency, right? It's a burst, and then it's relatively low.
3: Yeah, they jump really, from like 3 or 4 hertz to 20 hertz yeah. in one moment, right? And then they slow down gradually over, the, over <laughs> time.
2: I mean, it could be the case that that's, you know, that's just what the inputs do, but then you're just pushing it off to, to the, the question somewhere else. <laughs>
3: A long time ago, when people first saw dopamine cells doing this in vivo, they called them complex spikes was it by analogy to the climate-fiber response in the cerebellum? There are also complex spikes in other places, mm-hmm. in that superior colliculus, for example. And so it was thought that it wasn't really a bunch of separate spikes, each one triggered independently, but it was a kind of um, all-or-nothing right. event that this cell generated. What
1: about... Yeah, and if it was a bad idea. Well, I guess I'm thinking now of, of the... Uh, Tony Grace paper and the haloperitol-treated uh, spikes that you get a bunch of spikes and then you hang up, depolarized. I think
3: Tony was definitely, back then, in, Depolar, my, uh, in the 80s, uh, viewing it as a complex spike. Mm-hmm. My read of his papers suggests that. I don't think he ever used that term. Mm-hmm.
1: But. Yes, but that would, that would mean that your synaptic input is still high. is what's causing you to hang up, depolarized. I, I don't have the in vivo data to actually... We, 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 we don't have the in vivo data to say that if you uh, upregulate ERG or downregulate ERG, that you can uh, reduce the amount of depolarization block. We have in vitro data, but we don't have the in vivo data. So, uh, but I would I would still argue that by comparison to the in vitro data, where you can get bursts that hang up, that that's probably what's happening in vivo as well. That it's due to intrinsic dynamics and plateaus. But again, the NMDA current also could mediate plateaus. So. Uh, I, I guess it's something that so in slices, for example, Gerard
3: does this kind of experiment. Yeah, right. Where you could uh, you can stimulate afferents, mm-hmm. then you can try to get a continuous range sure. of firing right. rates with the afferents, and you can ask, "Do a, is there a sudden mode shift where it goes from you know just speeding up a little bit, maybe speeding up, a little bit, mm-hmm. and then suddenly you get a burst, yeah. or can you get?" Just sort of
4: gradual shades of 50 shades of 50 shades of current <laughs> and in between. Yeah, it's uh, it's can be variable. I mean, I've definitely seen variations where it seems as if you know, as you gradually increase your electrical intensity, sometimes it dramatically changes. It can be seen all or none, and then there's been other, other I would cells. think
1: maybe that's where you engage some sort of a maybe the L channel current or
4: uh, yeah, I mean, this, I mean, all or, or other things. I mean. Uh, we've seen changes in NMDA currents that seem to be almost inexplicable from you know, just changing L-type currents, but you know mm-hmm. like maybe you haven't looked at that. So. Uh, but in other cases, you can go more linearly, it seems like. So. But that's a little bit of an artificial phenomenon too, right? Because this is a case in which... All of the synaptic currents are activated all the exact same time. And whether that really happens in vivo, I would say no. Mm-hmm. But that's the model we have to work with at the moment. But the, uh, I
3: mean the the hypothetical that I was posing is yeah. some kind of synchronized, right? prolonged uh, synaptic the input. input right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be synchronized at the millisecond scale, but it has to be synchronized on the burst duration scale. Sure. So the, each the inputs are all kind of. Up. So yeah, that's right. a little bit like what we do in an yeah. artificial situation where you right. give a burst to the after. Right. So I, that's why that giving mm-hmm. a burst to the after yeah. is used as a yeah. model for this kind
4: of stuff. Sure.
0: So in your approach, okay. we can't separate. <laughs> So, so in your approach it sounds Maybe like you delimit things very specifically using real parameters. Um, or, or
1: what's your approach uh, do you- That's actually something I'm struggling with you know the level of complexity of a model. So the models I presented today were just really cartoon models. And they were very reduced to a very uh, as simple as possible in order to be able to do the maximum amount of analysis on them. But I am also interested in much more realistic models of dopamine neurons with full morphology and axons. And, uh, and probably, you know, the problem is, uh, I designed each model to, um, capture one little phenomenon, but it would be really nice to have an off the shelf model of a dopamine neuron that could capture a lot of things. And, And I'm working on that, but it's, it's really, it's complicated. And the problem is that I don't really believe in approaches where you do like parameter fitting, uh, and genetic algorithms and all this, and you have a model and you look at six thousand, six million iterations of it because I'm just not convinced that I ha- that everything's in my model that needs to be there.
0: So, so what do you start with in building a large scale model? <laughs> What's the sort of defining? Well, um,
1: uh, I don't. I mean, I, if, if it depends on what neuron, I guess. I mean, if but for dopamine neurons, I would want to. Uh, I I have there's uh, Charlie and I were talking about this. There's some morphologies out there in, in the in the literature, sort of typical dopamine neuron morphologies. And one thing that I've not done that I really should do is to get a nice realistic axonal morphology uh, attached to it. And actually there's models, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but from Paul Bollum's lab, there's one model that's basically just of the huge axonal tree of the substantia nigra pars compacted neurons because supposedly, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they have either the longest or one of the longest axonal arbors, largest axonal arbors of all the neurons
3: it's definitely CNS. way very long. I haven't
1: seen it lined up against every neuron there is,
3: but, but it's huge, it's apparently. It's huge,
1: and a huge metabolic load, and, and getting action potentials propagating down this huge axonal tree. <laughs> and so I've kind of I've kind of just been ignoring it, but. <laughs> Uh, so it, yeah. Do so you think of, that load might be felt all the way back at the summer,
3: or do you think that the
1: axon? Well, metabolically, yeah, but as far as the electrical yeah. activity, I, I
3: think well, it's most probably, probably like the KATP channel. It could matter if the if the axon is yeah. Uh, I don't uh, know. Traditionally, know. sick. Uh, traditionally <laughs> we've always thought that the that the metabolism of the axon was kind of independent. So, well, for example, if you kill the cell body of a neuron, the a uh, dopamineergic neuron, it will take. Four or five days before the axon terminals die. it didn't get the memo. They don't get the memo right <laughs> because they've got their own mitochondria. Okay. Okay. They're cranking out their own ATP according to their own local needs, and eventually they start noticing there's no new
1: protein coming their way.
3: Okay. <laughs> I think that's what happens. Yeah.
1: Well, I guess from my point of view, from the electrophysiology, probably you know the morphology of the action potential, and maybe you know the ent- entry into depolarization block may depend critically. On that uh, axon, and that's yeah. probably why I don't need, why I need to stop ignoring it.
3: <laughs> well, that'd be a big morphology. I'm well, thinking
1: about.
3: Like, I'm not that. sure you have how, to how put many the whole axon. do I need to represent. Like, I, I think like, you could just get synapses. I,
1: I think I would just go with a single cylinder uh-huh. and try to collapse it all into the electrical equivalent circuit. Uh-huh.
4: But zombie cells are unusual, right? Because it's been known for a while that they their action potential invades their dendrites. Significantly, right, and with not much uh, delay. Ready. In fact, um, right, exactly, right. So there's a lot of active conductances that actively maintaining that action potential.
1: Gentet uh, and Williams and uh,
4: that sounds about right. Yeah, they Probably recorded like, back propagating action right. potentials. And so, is
3: that oh, unusual? <laughs> like that most cells have. No, I think. Mean, I mean, don't. I mean, my
4: impression was that there the back propagating action potentials don't go. They become distorted very quickly. That was I can see like in one body. pyramidal neurons at
0: least. At least. Yeah, like exactly. when well, they
1: lose amplitude along the apical trunk. I don't right. Add.
4: Whereas I mean, whereas the there's almost zero loss in, in the, the amount of voltage all the way up the tree. Is my understanding? Well, I don't know. I think they've recorded
1: maybe 200 microns out, and I'm not sure any farther than that. I'm thinking of the house. The house. will Gentet Williams and, yeah, and Hauser and Vetter.
4: Yeah, and but they also, I mean, so and the other thing that's a little unusual is the dopamine cells axon often branches off of a dendrite, and so I think even in those papers they just tried they picked dendrites
1: right, so not a the dendrite that had the axon off a b of d axon bearing dendrite right yeah or all the dissertation What
2: <laughs> so one thing I want to go back you said oh it would be great to have an off the shelf complex model or something <sighs> but one of the, I mean, some of the point of what you're talking about, we don't have an off-the-shelf neuron to model. Uh, true. Tr- right? I mean, yeah. So we don't know if we're going to try to match all these things where all of those things happen in a in a given neuron, like if the yeah. real if there's real diversities among the neurons. But, I mean, they, you think, yeah. You think there's a I
1: mean, state back you're much more the electrophysiologist than I am, but there's sort of an idea of a typical prototypical substantia nigra neuron, right? That has a. There's this idea. Slow,
2: one question is whether, whether it exists. exists. Yeah. <laughs> exists, exists in, the, in the mind of the physiologist of all the clean cells that they keep and they throw all the other ones out of being weird. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I, I have to
3: do not do that. I do not throw out... It's, so, because we think they're weird. We just collect more of them. We collect more of them, so <laughs> we got new. it. We average them out. We average right. them in That's <laughs> a separate directory from The <laughs> Anything <laughs> else would be unethical. It just needs
4: to be... instead of not need an end of 4 or 5, you know, you're yeah. an add a 20 to you get your effects. So. But, I,
3: but I can't help hearing Jim Bauer, who sometimes used to sit in on these and who really would strongly argue that we should collect everything we know about a neuron, and build it into the model. And that the model kind of should... Sorry, Jim, if I'm not getting it (laughs) wrong. But the model should reflect our current state of knowledge of the neuron. And it is more than just a model of the neuron. It's also a representation of our current state of knowledge. And we can use it then to test our current state of knowledge. So uh, so enough... uh, channeling jim because yeah. i'm usually on the other side of that <laughs> argument but uh but what would it take you know to do that for do know what would we have to know I, yeah i think I actually if want seems to me our current
1: state of knowledge would be so crummy yeah.
3: that the dopamine cell model that we that's what i'm worried about is the things terrible, that i don't know
1: no? <laughs> well yeah i'd like to at least you know get one that would that would pace and respond to that you know mm-hmm. so you could do all the standard experiments on it, but then it's not useful unless it can then predict something you didn't build into the model.
2: But it could be useful for getting a new standard of experiments, right? So if you start to do something and it's hard to get this combination of that and that, and you kind of understand what combination of that and that, or which things go together, then you can design some protocol, because different neurons are different. You can't hit the average about everything, necessarily. But you could then design something – so what are you you really – what's the most efficient thing to measure to measure the critical differences between individual cells? And you would just – if you're just coming up with them, you just come up with reasonable stuff kind of ad hoc. But if you play with them in a range of models, then you can maybe come up with more efficient protocols – to distinguish amongst real I think what we're missing is the homeostatic mechanisms because these neurons wire themselves
1: up, right? And so they don't have any problems staying in the r- right range of parameter space. But we don't know what these rules are, so every time I change something, everything breaks. That would be helpful uh, to find what the rules are. <laughs> so that we could imitate the, the method used by the neurons right, to
3: of, find the correct parameters. Well, Th- that nice. would be, Yeah, then we could just let our
1: models grow themselves. And you could have many different solutions. You just need to know the rules. Uh, and like, you know, Eve's done some of this and uh, when you said averaging, that's what triggered it in my mind because just because you average everything that when you average all the parameters, that particular parameter set might not exhibit the behavior that you want that she has a paper on that. Once but actually, started,
3: once their own models started growing themselves, would be very close to the singularity of that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what singularity? Oh, okay. but actually I want to answer a question with a question and this may be really politically incorrect. But how on earth are they doing the, what is it, the blue brain or human brain? They're, they're trying to build a brain with all these, it's uh, Henry Mark. No, we should up. be asking
3: you about that.
1: No, I don't, I can't imagine, we don't, I tried to go out and find an off-the-shelf CA1 pyramidal neuron, and, you know, it just doesn't exist. I don't know how they're building these models if we don't have good enough models of the individual neuron types. And They're trying to build a whole cortex, right, or a column of cortex,
3: shall yeah, we Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe they have better models than... 90 well, no. um, dB or
2: whatever. But Henry's been trying to do that for ages. He's been doing the kinds of things that I'm talking mm-hmm. about. What are the different kinds of things to classify multiple cells, to split them into multiple mm-hmm. classes of cells? And can we make standard protocols that test all these things for each cell that we record from in a slice? Okay. Can we do a big battery of tests so that we can classify them into some you know, taxonomy of cells, and then you do it automated kind of way, so you go through and you do this for all cells. I mean, whether that's enough to build a blue brain or an yeah. or orange brain or whatever. But at least they're thinking about brain. the same
1: type of questions that you're bringing up. Yeah, I mean,
2: that's the... I mean, the, the selling point is just that they claim they could do it, I guess. But I think that's the, that is the approach of, of trying to classify... Uh, you know, in, in physiologically and anatomically and whatever to try to get the different classes that you start to to need the components that you think that you could do it. Uh, I mean, in some ways, that's the uh, that's the good part of that that whole endeavor.
0: But so, what, but what, could you know, you know a lot about it. So, what is the starting point? Are they starting with like output behaviors and a sort of modeling? You know, digging deeper in, or are they starting from the bottom up, from individual, you know, synaptic understanding of things? Like, where I don't understand anything about this. What do you guys know about it?
1: We haven't talked about enough. This. I, I just, I just, uh, just the idea of coming up with a a model of a dopamine neuron or a CA1 mm-hmm. and putting everything you know into that model.
3: I should get somebody from that group to come and explain it to
1: us. <laughs> justify it. Yeah, we
3: could do that. Just God, that's your mission. <laughs> So, what about the idea that maybe we don't have to know all that stuff? That, like, specifying a dopamine neuron in the kind of intricate detail mm-hmm. necessary to make a, a, a neuron that is really a, a dopamine neuron? Well. And, and that we could maybe
1: have some kind of simplified neuron that was. As long as it's not bursting, maybe you could just use the PRC like you did for the STN. But I. I, I I'm not sure that once you put bursting in the equation that that's going to be enough. So definitely if the,
3: if the burst is in a complex spike, so the phasor setting curve is a, like a super simplified model of a neuron. It's quite as simplified as, of a model as you can
1: make. Uh, Assuming it, it's an oscillator. But, uh, right? but it only works for
3: oscillating neurons. And um, if the neuron has more than one intrinsic mode of bursting and a pacemaking mode and and they're really different and not just a matter mm-hmm. of the input then the, you've got to have at least two phase response curves one for during the burst Fair one enough. for during the, for the, the the pacemaking and then you need some mechanism that to trigger Clip. that but, and so just make it appear see, wouldn't work but mm-hmm. if that burst was just coming from the properties of the synaptic input then it should uh, work. Just having something as simple as a phase resetting right. curve
1: might be. And I'm a huge fan of simplifying ner- neurons down to their phase <laughs> resetting curve. Uh, I guess it's, but I guess there's there's not, not that many situations where all your neurons are oscillators. So that's why I'm so attracted to the basal ganglia.
3: Basal uh, ganglia is good that way,
1: <laughs> but not every neuron in the basal ganglia. Is no, sadly,
3: at least not all the time. In slices, there are a lot of them that are not. But in vivo, every cell seems to be firing along, and so any cell that's got a resting membrane potential will lose it if it's got a tonic excitation that's big right. enough to keep it going. And so, um, the fact that cells are sitting at rest in slices doesn't mean that they are not oscillating in vivo.
0: Right. So, isn't that just part of their 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 response profile, part of their curve? It isn't that, that it, I mean, it can't,
3: I, I don't know. Yeah, the curve you're talking about is a larger curve than the phase-resetting curve, though. It's like, maybe you're thinking about, you know, the whole bifurcation structure of the neuron or something like that. In which case, the rest state is a part of that curve. But the phase-response curve can't explain the whole thing. And and cells at burst, where they have these really complicated, mm-hmm. like, three-dimensional or higher-dimensional bifurcation structures, then those things... Uh, become even worse, and and it could get worse, kind of nauseum by adding additional uh, dimensions. Right. And so, in the neuron that we that we imagine, the sort of realistic neuron model that's got zillions of currents distributed in different ways and different mm-hmm. parts of a really complicated morphology, then um, the dimensionality of that thing is overwhelming. And That's the that's the it scary is. thing for somebody who wants to make a model, because to make a realistic model, you've got to basically get it all right. I mean, realistic means...
1: And do I even know all the currents all right. that are in the dopamine? On amounts. all the different places, all <laughs> the different uh,
3: concentrations of ion right. channels in the membrane of every different part of the cell and the diameters. You know, just measuring the diameter of a dendrite sounds like an easy thing, but it actually turns out to be hard, because the dendrites aren't cylinders, and so... Uh, you can't just measure them you know, from a picture with a ruler. So everything is, uh, has conspired against us to make model neurons that are really, truly, exactly like real neurons. And so even the people that, that say we should make realistic model neurons, uh, they don't mean that it has to be exactly, perfectly, completely mm-hmm. right. But what, but, uh, so all of them end up saying well, it just has to be close enough for all practical purposes, and you don't know exactly how close that is. What are your practical purposes?
0: Uh, that's yeah. Fine. Sorry yeah. To be done. That's kind of a nebulous. <laughs> no- note to end on. So, but What, is, what are the success <laughs> stories? I mean, this is what you guys do. Well, this is what you do. So, what? Where? Where are the real leaps that have come from this sort of thinking? Can you identify those for us for our listeners? <laughs>
1: Um, just not really leaps, just incremental things. So, uh, like I'm, I'm working on, uh, well, just sometimes, sometimes you
0: make predictions and they get yes, worn so out. it Seems like the interplay between the like like physiologist and, and the modeler is really important. Um, yeah, and sort so of incrementally driven things in different directions than one would have expected without the models, right? Well, i going to help yeah, you A out. lot of what
3: a lot of what modeling is okay. good for is just helping you interpret your data. So, for, for example, in that KATP channel mm-hmm. data that from uh, uh, Roper's lab, there was a, a, a sort of inexplicable angle. Mm-hmm. The K-channel uh, right. sped the cell up at one time, and it slowed it down at another. And you would say, hey, it's a potassium channel. Shouldn't blocking it always make the cell go faster, and, huh? and increasing right. it always make the cell go slower? But it wasn't. But once it got put into the model, it... Yeah, I hate to claim it as a
1: success story because exactly. it's not proven yet, but at least it's a hypothesis. But
3: at least it allows you to say, well, my data aren't actually as crazy and contradictory as right.
1: I thought they were. But that's I the, think some element really does of it. the model has to be correct. I think you're getting, an, at least you're getting an oscillation in the ATP channel, and it's dropping below the baseline levels, allowing you to I mean,
4: fight fast. And, I mean, so like one possibility, right, is that there's a lot of, like, you know, when people are identifying new genes and trying to figure out what they do with neurons, mm-hmm. a lot of people use as model systems either hippocampus or they use cerebellum. And seemingly every one of those genes was always super critical for something in both of those cell types. And so one, <laughs> yes. right? And, yes. so, and so one possibility is that, you know, you really need a complete model that incorporates every single gene, right? Mm-hmm. But the other possibility is that maybe cells are compartmentalized. To kind of get into what Todd was saying a little bit of, which is, you know, maybe in terms of the KATP story you know the, the currents that were in, introduced into those models are the currents that are you know pr- perhaps proximal to what's happening mm-hmm. to like the synaptic input there's an interplay between the intrinsic dynamics and the synaptic input and maybe those are the only ones that really matter for that moment right and that maybe <laughs> and, and uh, that these other mechanisms will play a role in other sort of local dynamics Possibly. Yeah.
1: But I guess the other thing is if you're going to build, if you're you're going to stay at the single neuron model, that's one thing. But if you want to build a network model and understand some phenomenon that is at a higher level than the neurons, then that's what's really key. How do you abstract? You can't include every single detail of your single neuron model in network models. And so I like the idea if they're oscillators, you don't have to. You just throw away the model and use the PRC. But if they're not oscillators, then then I'm not yeah. sure
2: what the answer is. You can use, a, you can use one of the other one-dimensional models. That's why of people use integrated Me- water, right? Yeah, yeah. for example. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can make and other... And that'll work really I mean, good. You can make the subthreshold dynamics not be as linear or simple, and that's all... That's analogous to making your PRC a different shape. I mean, the voltage dependence yeah. is not... Yeah, and so
1: I guess that if you want to see the effect of a drug, you go to the single neuron model, and then you make a new abstraction yeah. but, in, in that case.
2: But there's no there's no difference. I mean, suppose you didn't have the models and you had somebody who's doing experimentally trying to guess at what the next thing to do to figure out what's going on. Yeah. They would have some ideas for figuring out what's going right. on and based on the data that they saw, they would say, well, maybe this causes mm-hmm. that and then they go test it. And, in some ways, all of these simple models are doing is is clarifying. Is testing your intuition about because right. some part sometimes the problem, the thing that goes wrong with that is not that the uh, experiment didn't <laughs> you know, follow the hypothesis, just that the hypothesis based on your previous data was wrong. You take. Implications from your previous data, and actually, they don't imply what you thought they did right. because you didn't right. understand Cassie the dynamics or something things, like that. Yeah. You're basically and, saying you, everybody
3: has a model, whether they have a model or not.
2: Right. Right. And, and explicitly making a model forces you. Sometimes it, it it's more rigorous. It doesn't it, it doesn't work uh, <laughs> the way you want it to do, and then you have to figure it out. And. In your brain, it always works the way you want it to because <laughs> you want it to. And so you just leap over these right. these difficulties. In some ways, that's a good thing because you can get stuck on, you know, picking even things that are wrong, right? You can get stuck on the, the way the reason the model works is is because the model is wrong and doesn't match the data. And so you, you get stuck down the models are always wrong. But on the other they hand… Might they might be could, useful. They can be illustrative of something, and you can learn a bunch, and then you go on from that. I don't know. It's, it's, in some ways, certainly that aspect of using simplified models is, is no... It's
3: like so that. is it safe to call that... I'm trying to distinguish that kind of modeling, which is modeling as a, a mind augmentation tool for experimentalists. Is that fair to, to call it that? And, hypothesis uh, engine. Uh, yeah. a hypothesis engine. And uh, the other use of a model, which is like the way the National Weather Service predicts uh, hurricanes and stuff like that, which is now you think this model. Is a real thing. To any experiment—it's a predictive thing that you're going to try to right. use for something. It's supposed to be the best model. you Well, can when make. I
1: started this work, I, I naively suggested that I was going to build a model of a dopamine neuron that would then replace real dopamine neurons because you could make manipulations on it, see what the drugs are yeah. going to do, and not have to use a real dopamine neuron. Don't we? It hasn't turned out. we that hope way. to do that someday? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's still my goal. Maybe that was could, 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 a bit naive could, at the time. Uh,
3: so, could, would we call that theory? If it was that, or would it just still be
2: another kind of model? It's a tool, but yeah, I still think it would be theory. Um, it's, yeah, so it's just mod- it's a model, right? <laughs> like it's a model that's supposed to mimic the real thing. So, right? I see.
3: So, what is. But that's definitely another, a different level. There's another mind. use I mean, of. T- tell maybe, me what a theory is. Uh, <laughs> I've often. I, in fact, one one time a famous neuro mathematician who will go a name told me. Public that he had explained to me because I obviously didn't know the difference between a plausible hypothesis, a model, and a theory. And I was unable to find him later that day. And I did not get that (laughs) explanation. And so I'm still waiting uh, for it. What is the difference between the model and the theory? Because it seems to me a theory is supposed to be a coherent, a theory of everything, perhaps. Set of ideas right. that are predictive and that can be tested, and that uh, uh, you know it become a little world of their own that you can work inside of and get answers. And that's different from a model, which is just a, like an ad hoc thing that I've made to explain why my data look like the way they do or to sort of express an idea that I have. So, if the you had a n- neuron a computerized neuron that represented all of your ideas about neurons and how they work, and and you could operate on it and never leave it and still get answers, would that not represent a theory?
1: I guess so. theory of dopamine neurons.
2: Uh, Straighten me out. To me, theory connotes something about uh, understanding it's a, it makes a sense of the various things because you can imagine building a model I mean, turning the crank, it does what it does I don't know how it does it but it really, does the same thing a, neuro, a dopamine neuron does every single time and so here's this model, it's not really a theory of dopamine neurons It just mm-hmm. it's a mimic and that's and right the, you know it's a pretty gray area you're not going to make a model that works that way if you so don't if have I, a theory So right? can I do
3: this, if I scale down instead of making a big model I make a little model of a phenomenon that I've seen in the laboratory, mm-hmm. and that that uh, model gives me insight and understanding about the experiment that I didn't have before. Would I then call that model a theory?
2: I, I think that it could be dependent on how general yeah. people use theories a little bit more general. Multiple things have to be explained okay. or an insight. So. If you get inside to I don't know 3. You know? Okay, so there's got to be some threat. I don't know. It doesn't have to be a you know hard uh, threshold, but it has to put multiple things together otherwise it's a hypothesis. Uh, but, I don't know. But like, that's
1: what I like about models because I put the model together and the thing came out and I didn't know it just it did burst but I didn't know why. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well that's actually what's an old happy surprise. I didn't, surprised. I didn't so design it to do, do it, it. it together and yeah. Nothing happened. yeah. But that's I think what I want to bring if you go back to what, what I think Jim's argument is is the a third thing in between those things. It's not to make a detailed thing that reproduces things that we didn't mm-hmm. – not only maybe to, to do that. The claim is that if you put all the stuff that you know in in terms of mechanism, uh, then it's going to come out with behavior that you didn't expect. It's not necessarily even – yeah, it's just it, – so you have to understand why is, is the stuff that you put in so inadequate? and maybe you don't know or you really get a limit but because the other version of a simple model is explaining the data that you already have so you just basically are following on the data that we already have and based on your ideas that you already have you try to explain those things right. and if you could put a, put new stuff in the model all about mechanism and try to put all the stuff in what are the implications of what we know we might have lots of interesting surprises and lots of interesting things to find that we weren't looking for, like in, in in building a simple model, you're trying to understand why this thing right. that we saw happened. Well, if you have all this stuff and you find out why did this work in a way that I never seen before, I never expected. It's a different kind of thing, and there's a lot of discovery there too. I I don't know how fruitful it is, but I think that's kind of what. It's in, and that's in between making a model that reproduces and, and is a model of a predictive model that way kind of way. You gotta kind of go all between all those perspectives. I think every time you do something, a little bit.
0: We ended up pretty meta. Yeah, I think that was probably more meta than we've gotten in few seasons, so <laughs> a round of applause, That's what we love. Okay. So that was great. Thank you for being with us, Carmen Canavie, cool. and this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.